This episode of This Changes Everything is presented by WGU Washington. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'll, yeah, you just tell me which, which way and I will, I'll, I'll go. So one blustery day last fall, Crosscut staff reporter Venice Buhayan and I met up with Julia Hammond at a park in Bremerton. So my name is Julia Hammond and I live in the town of Bremerton and we have children at Brownsville Elementary and at Catalyst Public Schools, which is a charter school. Um, so I've got a fourth grader and a seventh grader. When the pandemic started, they were in second Exactly. Second grade and fifth grade. And like almost everyone else we talked to for this series, Julia remembers the exact date of that first order to shut down all K-12 schools in Washington. It was a Friday the 13th, and bless his heart, my son now believes they're unlucky forever. Um, But we all got the news, and then three hours later, the children were home. And then it was, you know, pick up a lot of tape and paper and craft supplies because you don't know how long you're going to be home. How long, indeed. But you know how this story goes. Boom, a few weeks became a few months, and online school became the new reality. Right away, Julia and her husband got a taste for what parenting in a pandemic really meant for a lot of families, those who were lucky enough to be able to work from home anyway. Suddenly, school was in their living room. They were the supervising adults, and technology was the only way to get to class. I I do remember one day, it was um, two weeks after they had gone home, and it was the very first classroom meetup, and so there was a lot of emotion for my second grader because she is such a good little friend, and so it was her first opportunity to see her other friends on the screen, and um, because we were using computers at home, ours weren't as updated as the ones at school, and so we couldn't get the platform to load, and she couldn't get access to the classroom, and emotions were high, and that was a really challenging day because, you know, she... In her head, she was just, I can't see my friends. And we're over here trying to figure out, like, do we need to buy new computers today? Like, what is happening? (laughs) So we just didn't understand the technology requirements that would be needed. Oh, and by the way, Julia's two kids in school weren't even the only kids at home. At the time, we had um, a toddler and a baby at home as well. And so, as you can imagine, the noise level to try and attend these Zooms was uh, was insane. (laughs) And so trying to manage getting them to their specific meets on time with the correct classroom paperwork or or whatever that they needed to have open. And then also juggling that with, you know, uh, physical therapy for the baby and all of these things. That was a a bit of a challenge noise-wise as well as like capacity-wise. They were on their headphones, but there was a, a fair amount of squawking from our house into the Zooms. Um, It's just unavoidable. Um, Thankfully, the children eventually learned how to mute, so. So for Julia's son, the oldest, online school was not the best, but it worked. Despite the Zoom fatigue, he did all right. Julia even thinks that he might have been able to keep doing school online for longer. They both have different levels of social need, and so, my son has, you know, a couple of really great friends. Um, and my daughter has, she told me, 52 friends in the car today. <laughs> so um, for her, getting back to in-person school was almost mandatory. Um, whereas for my son, I think, you know, had it been a different circumstance, he might have been okay with staying online as long as he could have, like, meetups with friends. But for Julia's daughter, the younger one, online school wasn't just lonely. It was basically impossible. It was unbelievably challenging. And that's mostly because of the way she learns. She has a vision um, convergence insufficiency, so it means that 
processing for her um, reading is challenging. She does have what's known as a 504 plan, which is public school shorthand for a personalized educational plan to accommodate students with learning differences. Those differences could be anything from ADHD to dyslexia or really anything at all that, according to federal law, greatly limits one or more major life activities. And so, for Julia's daughter, that was going okay in regular in-person school. But for a child with visual processing challenges, staring at a screen for school, that just doesn't work. I mean, her parents tried to make it work. Julia and her husband attempted to seek out similar resources they'd had for their daughter in her in-person classroom. But, well, they just weren't there. At least not in those chaotic beginning times. Because, again, it was a big scramble. They're just... We didn't really feel connected to that support afterwards, so we ended up doing a lot of um, translating for her. If the pandemic threw a kind of hand grenade into public education, the resulting explosion was even bigger for special education. For Julia and her family, and a lot of parents of kids with special needs, 2020 was an out-of-the-blue crash course in how to do a lot of that special education themselves. You know, in second grade, they're still getting their core concepts. They're learning to read. They're learning to spell. Um, a lot of the requirement was to type responses on the computer. Um, and the skill of thinking a thought, finding the letters, and then getting it into coherent thought on the computer, there, there, there are multiple skills there. And so I was having my daughter just speak it, and I would type it, as she said, into the computer so that at least it wasn't just, you know, three words. <laughs> you know, so that was a... That was a pretty big challenge for our family. I'm Sarah Bernard, and this is This Changes Everything, a podcast from Crosscut about the new normal. So for this, the last episode of the season, we're taking a peek at one of the thorniest aspects of the public education system, special education. But not just because it's thorny. Stay with me here. Yes, for lots and lots of students and families involved in special ed, the shutdowns were a total nightmare. Shift to remote learning devastated families of children with special needs. 40% of parents said their kids hadn't received the special education supports they should. Lawsuits were filed, and state investigations into districts, including Seattle Public Schools, found violations of the federal law that requires public schools to provide a free and appropriate education for students with disabilities. It was, and still is, a mess. But when we were looking for insights into education right now, it wasn't just darkness that came our way. There were some surprising points of light, like this one. For some parents, the pandemic created a really unique opportunity. It helped them see what school is like and what learning is like for their kids in a much more intimate way than they probably ever would have. The virtual year was a revelation. This is how my child is. This is how she learns. My three kids, how all their learning styles were different, humbled me. It was stressful, of course. But this strange situation that sort of forced some parents to be teachers, well, in some cases, it actually made things better for their kids, especially if they had learning differences. And along the way, some say, it might have also helped break down a few of the not very helpful barriers between school and home. Stay with us. Okay. I'm just recording myself just in case we need it, and hopefully, and I'm not monitoring it, so we'll see. 
So a few months ago, Venice called up Delia Winbush, a parent in Kent. My name is Delia Winbush. Um, we live in um, Kent, Washington. We are part of the Kent School District. My daughter's name is Nadira Winbush. Um, she is in fifth grade at Neely O'Brien Elementary. And Nadira is someone who, like a lot of kids, did not exactly thrive when the schools shut down. She has a lot of friends and a lot of energy. She's very rambunctious. She's a, she's a people person, literally. She's like me. And when the pandemic hit, everything, the schools closed. I said, okay, well, she's home. Didn't know what I was going to do with her. Um, I was trying to figure out how to keep her education going as well as how to keep her her physical um, activities going. Um, and so once everything shut down, she couldn't go outside. The only interaction she had was through like voice streaming um, apps like FaceTime and Google Duo. Um, and for, the, for her, it was hard because she wanted to continuously talk and everybody was still trying to keep working. So it was hard and she was a little frustrated. And for Nadira, that kind of frustration can get complicated by her diagnoses. Right at the beginning of 19, of 2019, um, there were some issues at school. And it became very apparent that something was wrong. I turned around and I automatically got her checked out. And they said she has ODD. That's short for oppositional defiant disorder which can mean a lot of things, including some intense mood swings and aggression that can sometimes spiral into what Delia calls episodes. Yes, there were some days when she had to take mental days because the night before she had an episode. Nadira has also recently been diagnosed with ADHD. Which also makes sense. She's a talkative child. And she was, she'd always say, I'm bored. And more specifically, she often had a hard time doing certain tasks at school, Delia says, such as taking timed tests. It would go one of two ways. It would go either she's going too fast, like she'll be done in five minutes, a whole test, or she would daze and nothing would capture in the time frame because of the fact that she dazed and did not focus. So all of that was in the background. And then the shutdowns happened. For Nadira, suddenly doing school online in third grade, and then going into fourth grade, it was just kind of horrible, at least at first. In, initially, at the start of fourth grade, she was, I would say, at about a D average. And, and, and she was holding it steadily almost to an F because she wasn't doing any work. And a lot of that, her mom says, was related to Nadira's mental health. Sometimes it felt like helping her with school had to take a total backseat to just managing her behavior and emotional well-being. For me as a parent, it was just way too much. And even as a parent, there was moments where I was like, okay, this is a lot. And um, that was okay. I'd rather have tell, you know, dealt with the, the health piece versus her education. So a lot of the time it was like, I'd rather you be okay. School can come later. But then, slowly, over the course of that chaotic fourth grade year, as Nadira was able to find some good medical care, something shifted. It was a slow turn. Like, it literally was kind of like learning how to ride a bike. 
you know, first you have your training wheels. Okay, she had, so she wasn't on the tricycle. She had training wheels again. And I was like, okay, I need you to kind of get back into doing school. You know, get up. You know, let's, let's put yourself on the schedule. It, it was really, really hard. But first, I don't, and I can tell you, I really don't know exactly where in that turn through fourth grade that she just made the switch because it wasn't apparent to me. Because, I mean, I, I had a conversation with her. Her grandfather had a conversation with her stating, you know, you need to continue to have your education. That's something that you want. You're saying you want to be a marine biologist. Okay, guess what? You can't be a marine biologist with only a fourth grade level education. And she thought she could. She, she looked, we looked it up. Like, no, you can't. Which is a compelling argument. But who knows? We never knew exactly where the click happened. The point is, it did. Nadira started putting in some effort. And with the help of a really great fourth grade teacher... She was phenomenal. Delia was able to see, day after day after day, in a way that she might not have if school hadn't been happening right there in her living room, exactly what was going on with Nadira. How she really struggled with some things, but totally over the moon excelled at other things. She loves books, for example, and Delia says she reads really fast and sometimes way above elementary school level. But when it comes to books, she doesn't like reading online. So if if um, if the teacher gave her a chapter to read on her computer, she wouldn't read it. But if you gave her the book, the book would have been read in like a day and a half. Also, she's a researcher. She she researches. So she can get online and she can research all day, every day. But if you put a test in front of her on a computer, it doesn't work. And so we tried something. Me and my father, we tried something with her. What we did was my dad made up a math test with pencil and paper. And said, okay, you have five minutes to complete this test. And it was just adding subtraction. And the deer was done in two minutes. <laughs> and it was it was a very it was a telltale. So there's some there's something in, in that correlation with her and screens reading wise that didn't work, which I knew. And then once we did the test in regards to the paper, the paper test, it was like, I get it. Everyone learns differently. Whether you're someone who likes to write things down or play a game or build something, whether you're diagnosed with ADHD or ODD or nothing at all, everyone learns differently. And what's tough sometimes in a typical classroom is that it isn't always possible to both see and adapt to all of those nuances in every single kid all the time. There are 504 plans. There are individual education plans, or IEPs. Schools try. But mostly, we teach to the middle. We muddle through. So yeah, the school shutdowns were definitely hard. Delia relied on a lot of people in her life to help her be a mother and a caregiver and an educator all at once. I'm actually very, 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 very thankful for every last one of them. But these times were also, for Delia anyway, a blessing. So like, there's a lot of things that popped up that would have never popped up in regards to her education and self. I will not put her back into remote learning. It did not help. But trying to teach her 
actually showed me that she really does need that one-on-one. She really needs that personable piece of teaching. And that's why I was really pushing for her to go back to school. Um, Because even when she had the personable touch at home, she got it. So for us, it's the pandemic in regards to education has been a whirlwind. But at the same time, I'm happy that I got to really understand where my child learning issues were. And now that Nadira is back in person in a fifth grade classroom, so far, she's doing great. I actually had to have a conversation with the teacher and say, look, this is how my child is. This is how she learns. She's Yes, she's a talker. But if you give her something to do at all times, you won't have any issues with her. If you allow her to ask her questions when she actually has questions, you will have no problems from her. And that's exactly what's been happening. And my daughter comes home not stressed out, not frustrated. It's now, I had a really good day. I learned this, 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 this. And she goes down the list of things. You're like, wow. So, I mean, like I said, a lot of things have come up and it's a beautiful thing. I know this sounds like way too happy an ending for real life, but I promise you it's real. We weren't looking for happy endings, but Delia Winbush came to us and this is what she wanted to talk about. And this kind of experience, it's actually what a number of parents wanted to talk about. More on that after the break. Good teachers need good teachers. And class is in session at Western Governors University. Online and competency-based, WGU Washington offers respected bachelor's and master's degree programs in teaching. For aspiring and veteran teachers who want a high-quality, affordable education on their schedule and at their pace. Learn more at WGU.edu. So, back to Julia. She and her husband and her daughter battled those first few months of online school, too. But, you know, it sucked. It was a, such, a, such a scramble. Everyone was just trying to, like, tread water. Both my husband and I were concerned at the end of the school year with the experience that our daughter had. And so the following school year, they changed their approach. Um, And after this time at home um, from September to February, we actually homeschooled our daughter because the virtual school was too challenging. It was really emotionally hard for her. We wanted to be able to give her a little bit more support and not be quite so tied to, um, you know, meet at this meeting at this time and this meeting at that time. And so what we did was a friend of ours, oh, she's amazing, came over with a stack of curriculum and said, here, use these things. Um, And so we were able to uh, find out where she was and then work with her on skills. She and her husband dug up all kinds of free learning materials online, like lesson plans and videos and ideas for activities. And they leaned on friends and family. They tried to make sure things were as hands-on as possible. And we did a lot more uh, kinesthetic activities than they might have been able to do in class um, because that worked. Um, so we did a lot of uh, jumping jacks, multiplications, <laughs> and um, doing some dance moves to, you know, learning division and those kinds of things. Um, and I think that that's doable when you just have one or two students, but it's really hard to do across a, in a large classroom. So we wanted to give her the experience of of finding achievement. And that really was the key here. 
For Julia, it was super important that her daughter felt capable, not inadequate. I would say that we um, came to a greater understanding of each other during the pandemic. Having her come away feeling confident in herself as a person, that was good. I was able to see that she um, is a really hard worker. Um, And she's a very creative person with physical materials. So she built um, a playhouse out of plywood um, things that she dragged home. (laughs) And she designed it with my husband. And we were working to move her from cardboard creations to things with screwdrivers, things with a little more permanence. And so giving her the opportunity to thrive there, was it was good to see. But when the schools opened up again for in-person learning, like Julia said earlier, her daughter pretty much insisted on going back. Sure, homeschooling was fun, but it was too isolating. She needed to see her friends. If you remember, she has a lot of friends. And my daughter has... She told me 52 friends in the car today. Still, because Julia had learned so much about her daughter's learning style and had had so many conversations with other parents and neighbors and teachers about what effective accommodations in regular public school might look like, she went back in armed, if you will, with a lot more information. So um, my daughter took a, a quiz on a math concept that had a lot of words with it, a lot of reading, and did she did not do well. <laughs> and she was distressed because she understands the concept. She just didn't understand how to read it and click it. So we went home and we made posters for each individual concept. And it was highlighters and Fibonacci sequences and all kinds of things. But to turn that into her teacher to say that she does understand, she just, you know, can't present the information in, in a typical way. So, And her teacher was pretty receptive. There's this concept called universal design in learning. At its most basic, it means that everyone learns differently and we should design classrooms that way. Like some students will do better if they can move their bodies, others will do better if they write things down. In other words, if a student can't seem to ace a certain kind of test, maybe the problem isn't with the student, it's with the test. And Julia says some school districts in Washington are starting to pay more attention to this idea. I I just got a little bit more excited about some of the changes that are happening in the districts, um, a move towards like universal design and learning, where students are able to present their knowledge in a way that is accomplishable for them and not necessarily in a way that looks the same for every student. Some students, those with dyslexia, those with ADHD, those with other learning differences will struggle um, to be evaluated with the same tool that we've always used. So how can we show their competence, you know? Universal design isn't mandated policy in the same way that providing a 504 plan for a student who needs one is. But it's a general approach to teaching that a lot of educators are increasingly using. It's been encouraged at the state level in various ways over the past few years, from a Washington state PTA endorsement to its role as a guiding principle in the state's development of social-emotional learning standards. And it's part of the federal Every Student Succeeds Act, which explicitly encourages states to develop assessments that, quote, to the extent practicable, use the principles of universal design for learning. So I wouldn't say that this is an interest that the pandemic created or anything, but the interest is there. And it's definitely something that now Julia talks to her daughter's teachers about and to her daughter. So she, too, can use it to feel more competent and more empowered. So just because someone evaluates you as being deficient in an area doesn't necessarily mean that's accurate. It just may mean that their tool is not comprehensive. 
Um, and so we are trying to teach her to advocate for herself, um, moving through the world. Um, and then as well to just, you know, ask for a different measuring tool when she needs it, you know. So maybe Julia would have come around to this idea anyway. But the pandemic certainly accelerated it. And so after all the intense stress of the shutdowns and the homeschooling and the isolation and everything else, this is a silver lining she sees. I think, honestly, many parents were able to see um, the, the capacity of their children in a, a different way. I am hopeful that other parents of children with learning differences are able to advocate a little more strongly for their students um, to say that the typical learner moves through the public system, probably okay, but the learner with a learning difference really has a bumpy time and ends up in middle school or high school feeling incapable. So how do we prevent that in the earlier grades especially? How do we make sure that they know my capabilities lie in this field and here's where I'm successful and here's where I can contribute? So we spent a lot of time this episode showcasing how some superstar parents were able to become better advocates for their kids thanks to the shutdowns. It probably seems unusual. And maybe it is. There's certainly not any data out there about this. It's just a theme that we noticed while reporting. Because Julia and Delia, they're not even the only parents we heard this from. The virtual year was a revelation because that was the year I realized my older son, you know, we have great teachers all of his years in school, but it wasn't enough. This is Jiaying Griegel, who lives in Seattle. She says the year at home actually worked out really well for her family, especially her older son. I could see that he was far behind and he needed um, a lot of remedial work. Um, so actually this year, um, he's back in school full time, but I'm pulling him out in the afternoons to do one-on-one tutoring because he still needs to catch up. But that I'm glad we had that year online because I got to see like, holy crap, you're really behind and we needed to catch up. And he wasn't going to be able to do that in a regular classroom. He gets super distracted, um, super unfocused. And it's funny. It's like the same set of like multiplication problems. He'll do it at school. <laughs> He'll get them all wrong. And then, like, at home, I'll, like, copy over on a sheet of paper, and he'll do them, like, by himself, me not helping at all. And he'll do them, he'll get them all right. So it's just removing the distractions so that he can focus and actually learn what he's supposed to be learning in school. But that's what we learned last year, that he needed um, more than what the school environment could give them. And that's huge. It sometimes takes a parent paying close attention to help a kid succeed. But I do want to add that Julia and Delia and Jiaying also emphasized to us just how amazing they thought teachers were, too. Maybe after spending so much time over the last couple of years trying to understand one student, they got a little taste of what it might feel like to have to do that dozens of times over, day after day. I mean, I've always had a respect for teachers, but I really had a highly a better respect for, pe- for teachers because they have to deal with multiple t- personalities in one classroom. And if you got 30 kids with 30 different personalities, man, oh man, that's, that's a lot. Another parent, Ubach Kedere, whose three kids go to school in Bellevue, she told us something similar. A lot of times you come into these spaces thinking that education is one size fits all, but even the example I used around my three kids, how all their learning styles were different, humbled me. 
And mm-hmm. honestly, also just this kind of um, gratitude towards teachers who are able to go into a class where there's like 25 different children and figure out how to meet each kid's needs, you know? Just like seeing your kids and how they're struggling and how you're struggling and you're like, oh my God, there was there are teachers who have been doing this for the longest time, you know? Uh, come into a kindergarten a class where there's 20, 25 kids, you know, that we took for granted, you know, and just expecting that no matter what. The experience, I think, humanized the teachers for the parents. And so it actually, I think, I don't know for all, but it, definitely the parents that we knew, um, it it sort of broke the wall down between teacher and parents. And then it was more like co-creators or co-supporters in the work together. And this kind of thing, this kind of breaking down the wall, it really seems to have gone both ways. We heard it from parents and from educators. You know, when when kids were sent home, teachers and staff realized really quickly how much they needed families, and families realized really quickly how much they needed teachers and staff. This is Susan Enfield, superintendent of Highline Public Schools, who you heard from in some previous episodes. And I think that it created more frequent and organic communication and collaboration between home and school that, you know, we've always really wanted, but haven't, I think, achieved at scale. And so I think that, you know, because, you know, teachers and and staff and and families were getting a window into each other's world and what, what joins them together in that world is that child. Um, There was, there was more, you know, more opportunity to really create what I call, I, I call it team kid, you know, that, that our students felt like there was a team of adults at home and at school working together for their success. And some of that, as simple as it sounds, actually had a lot to do with having meetings virtually, Susan says, especially for students with special needs. For students who have IEPs, our students with special needs, an individualized education plan. And we have a student with an IEP. Uh, by law, we have to have regular meetings with staff and with family to, to look at that IEP and update it. Um, obviously, we had to do those all virtually. And our our family participation in IEP meetings skyrocketed because now a parent didn't have or guardian didn't have to take time off work or find childcare to come to an IEP meeting. They could log on as you and I are doing right now and connect. So um, I have basically said to our staff this year, any meeting that involves families forevermore has to have a virtual option. Um, because especially for working parents, parents with kids, with little ones at home, it can be really hard to physically show up. At, at a meeting. And so I think that we're going to look at what family engagement and school family partnerships look like now. It's not always going to be physically showing up. It can be something like this. And so that's something that we don't want to lose. Almost all students ha- were negatively impacted by the pandemic and the If you've been paying attention to the news about public education over the past few years, most of it is really bad. Some data is emerging on the devastating impact that learning loss... There's a mental health crisis. There's learning loss. This report confirms what every parent was worried about. And then there's the way some parents are behaving. A shouting match over masks. School board meetings, for example. They become battlegrounds. If you only paid attention to that, you'd probably believe that the wall between parents and schools had gotten even taller, even thicker. 
But the truth is, that isn't the only story. Here again is Chris Allen, a teacher you met way back in our first episode. I think before the pandemic, I was getting a little jaded that public education was just a place to house small ones so the grown-ups could work. That we were glorified babysitters. And, and I was, you know, I was thinking about retirement, I was thinking about being done. And I know that this pandemic has kind of been a board upside the head of parents and everybody around them to say, no, 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 educators actually do a pretty darn good thing every day with, with your child while you're trying to make ends meet and feed your family. So it, it kind of went from a kind of a bitterness and a, and a feeling of being underappreciated to, to feeling more as though what we're doing is, is vital. And so, yes, some teachers have quit in anger and frustration and exhaustion. Some parents are stressed out and overwhelmed. But some teachers and parents do actually feel optimistic. For some, shaking things up in education has made the most important parts of it much more clear. It's made it easier to hope. And that seems like a good place to end. Thanks for listening to This Changes Everything. This episode was reported and produced by me, Sarah Bernard, with additional reporting by Venice Buhayan. Editorial help from Claudia Rowe and Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers. Donna Blankenship is our consulting editor, and our story editor and executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. Audio support from Jonah Cohen. We also want to note that Mark Baumgarten's wife works for the Renton School District as a special education facilitator, though she doesn't work with any of the teachers interviewed for this series. You can subscribe to This Changes Everything wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For more on This Changes Everything and other CrossCut podcasts, go to crosscut.com slash podcasts. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. This Changes Everything is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard, and that's it for this season. Thanks so much for listening.